Welcome to SLP Nerdcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Amy, and we appreciate you tuning in. In this podcast, we review and provide commentary on resources, literature, and discuss issues related to the field of speech-language pathology. You can use this podcast for ASHA CEUs. For more information about us and CEUs, go to our website, www.slpnerdcast.com. SLP Nerdcast is brought to you in part by listeners like you. Even small contributions keep our CEU prices low and our program ad-free. You can contribute on our website by clicking support our work. You can also go to our website to find permanent products, notes, and other handouts. Some items are free, others are not, but everything is always affordable. Visit our website to submit a call for papers to come on the show and present with us. Contact us anytime on Facebook, Instagram, or at info at slpnerdcast.com. We love hearing from our listeners, and we can't wait to learn what you have to teach us. Just a quick disclaimer, the contents of this episode are not meant to replace clinical advice. SLP Nerdcast, its hosts and guests do not represent or endorse specific products or procedures mentioned during our episodes unless otherwise stated. We are not PhDs, but we do research our material. We do our best to provide a thorough review and a fair representation of each topic that we tackle. That being said, it's always likely that there's an article that we've missed or another perspective that we haven't shared. And if you have something to add to the conversation, please email us. We'd love to hear from you. We get to welcome two guests onto the show today, which we're so excited about. Welcome Jennifer Layton and Dr. Margaret Bowman. Thank you. Hi. Um, So little anecdote, all four of us had we worked together once upon a time in the days of yore, many years ago, many, the four of us ago. worked together in this really unique outpatient hospital setting. And this hospital setting was unique because half of the office was supported by an outpatient rehab hospital. And the other half of the office was supported by um, a medical, was more of a, not a rehab hospital, was I want to say a regular hospital, a medical hospital. <laughs> None of that makes any sense. But my point is that we all shared um, an office, we shared a kitchen, um, we shared inter-office space and half of us were therapeutic professionals and the other half were medical professionals. And it was this really unique, um, work experience because we got to participate in so much collaboration. There was so much collaboration between the therapeutic staff and the medical staff. Um, and because of that collaboration, we learned so much from our medical counterparts. We learned about medications, medication side effects, um, we got to have all of these casual discussions about communication and pain and medical needs. Um, and we are really excited to, um, dive a little bit into that today and discuss the relationship between complex medical needs and, uh, communication deficits. Um, we chose this topic because as speech and language pathologists, we work so closely with clients and students who do have complex medical profiles. And unfortunately, in most speech and language pathology work settings, we don't get the opportunity to work closely with medical professionals and attend ground round, grand rounds lectures on um, different types of medical interventions. So um, we're super, super excited about this. Before we get started, though, I wondered if um, Jen and Dr. B, you guys would tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hi, so I'm Jen Layton, and I am very excited to be here today. I have been a speech and language pathologist for over 30 years. Um, I started my career working with adults with neurological difficulties on a traumatic brain injury unit, and that background gave me tremendous insights into the students I have been working with for the last 20 years. Um, Fortunately, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Bowman um, for six years at the clinic, and I am very grateful that I've had that background. I feel like I bring that information to my job every day, and that was one of the reasons we thought this would be a great podcast to share with people. And um, I currently work in a collaborative with students 3 to 21 with complex communication needs, with a lot of AAC needs, and prior to that, I was a speech therapy consultant to the schools for AAC. Uh, hi, I'm Margaret Bowman. I'm a, a child neurologist uh, by training. Uh, I began my career mostly interested in individual children uh, who have learning disabilities or learning differences. Uh, somewhere along the line, I got a little bored in the clinic and decided I would do some research. Uh, so I camped out and we did some uh, research as it relates to brain function, particularly in, in individuals on the autism spectrum. 
along the way, though, I've continued to do the uh, multidisciplinary kind of approach that you've already heard about, which I think has been extremely valuable. Um, Jen talks about how valuable it was for her. I think as a neurologist, it was extremely valuable for me. Uh, we don't, in our training, have exposure to people with other disciplines. I would, would, at least not outside of the medical field. And so the ability to work with individuals who come from a therapeutic side of things and to realize that people look at uh, the same patient from a different angle is really extremely valuable uh, for those of us who are trying to, to treat individuals from a medical perspective. We don't always appreciate some of the other aspects of, of a child or an adolescent's development. And uh, so this has been a real experience for me as well. And I am thrilled to be here and I hope that we can all contribute and share information together that'll help everyone. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're so excited to have you both. Obviously you both have a tremendous wealth of experience. Um, and it's just nice to see your faces. We've both known you for years. So it's so nice to be here all together and have this, have this really great discussion. Um, I am going to just quickly read through our learning objectives for the episode, as well as our financial and non-financial disclosures. Sometimes people write in and ask me to skip this because it's boring. I can't. Asha makes me read it. So we will try and get through this as quickly as possible. Learning objective number one, discuss the importance of considering medical conditions for individuals with complex communication needs. Learning objective number two, discuss ways to identify when individuals with complex communication needs may be expressing pain. Learning objective number three, identify at least three medical conditions that could be associated with complex communicators. Disclosures, Jennifer Layton's financial disclosures. Jen is an employee of a public school system. Jen's non-financial disclosures, Jen is a member of ASHA and MASHA. Dr. Bowman's financial disclosures, Dr. Bowman is employed as a neurologist in various outpatient hospital settings. She's also a researcher through the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Bowman's non-financial disclosures, Dr. B is a member of the American Academy of Neurology, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the International Society for Autism Research, and the Society for Neuroscience. She also serves on various advisory boards. Kate, that's me. I'm the owner and founder of Grand Bois Therapy and Consulting, LLC, and co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. My non-financial disclosures, I'm a member of ASHA SIG-12 and serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. I'm also a member of the Berkshire Association for Behavior Analysis and Therapy, Mass ABA, the Association for Behavior Analysis International, and the Corresponding Speech Pathology and Applied Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group. Amy, that's me. Financial disclosures. I am an employee of a public school system and co-founder of SLP Nerdcast. And my non-financial disclosures are that I'm a member of ASHA, SIG-12, and I serve on the AAC Advisory Group for Massachusetts Advocates for Children. Okay. Boring stuff is over. Now we get to talk about all the fun Done. things. Yes. So I think it might be a good place to start to just address the obvious question. Why is it so important to consider medical conditions when we are treating individuals who are either non-speaking, minimally speaking, or have complex communication needs? What is, what's so important about this relationship? Well, if you're asking me, which I guess you are, uh, I think it's, it's incredibly important. I think because most of us simply know that if we don't feel well, we're not going to do well. Uh, and if we can't identify a, a child's discomfort, then how can we expect that child to uh, give their best or put their best effort into and make the progress that they're capable of making? So I think it's, it really is critical. It's not, not obvious about how one does this and it's, it can be challenging to make these kind of diagnoses. And furthermore, it's also challenging about how you convey your suspicions uh, to a parent without having to uh, you know, alarm them, so to speak. Uh, but I think that it, it is critical that somebody at least uh, raise the suspicion to some uh, to a parent that there could be some medical concerns and that that it should be checked out. And I think, you know, it also, you know, individuals with complex communication needs and individuals who are non-speaking or minimally speaking, they have a hard time communicating. So, you know, being we as speech and language pathologists, we think so often and talk so often about communicating basic wants and needs, but communicating about pain and communicating about physical wellness is so critically important. 
Um, and I think for SLPs, you know, in the various, you know, different work settings that we have, and not only outpatient clinics where we used to work with you, but school settings or, you know, outpatient clinics that don't have access to medical information, having a look, you know, having that as a, a lens and really making sure that's a focus is, is critically important for life. It, it really is. Well, I, I, I totally agree. I think that they're, they're probably just to take time here to expand on that topic a little bit. It's extremely difficult. They have no way to verbalize or communicate to us that they're uncomfortable. Uh, so that, for example, there have been circumstances and I'll just give a scenario of a young woman, this is a young adult, came into the office hitting her head uh, repetitively uh, saying head hurts. Uh, and that was the one thing that she could apparently say and her parents came in and they were saying uh, that they thought she had headaches. I said, well, you know, before we go that route, I think we should, she should see a gastroenterologist. Okay, now this is not anybody that's got any kind of gastrointestinal symptoms whatsoever, okay? Let's just start with that. All she's doing is hitting her head repetitively. Long story short, they go to the gastroenterologist. Fortunately, they didn't think I was crazy. And they went to that person uh, and it turns out that they did whatever the workup was. And this young woman ended up with gastroesophageal reflux disease and esophagitis. It got treated and no more head hurts or heading her head. Okay. So I think in this circumstances, what you're getting is a young woman who's telling you, I don't feel well. And uh, she's not telling, this is her one way of saying, I don't feel well. It doesn't necessarily mean my head hurts. Okay. So I think how you translate what somebody's telling you is another issue. Another scenario, and I'd like to tell stories because I think they, I remember stories better than, you know, having a lecture at me, uh, is to say it was a child that I saw in, in California, and this was a four-year-old, and I was the third neurologist. And the story here was that this was a child who had seizures, and everybody had been treating his seizures, and no matter what they did, he was still having these seizures, and what should they do? And so uh, how somehow I ended up being the third neurologist. So I hear the story and about two thirds of the way through the visit, the mother says, oh, well, by the way, I have a video on my cell phone of one of these episodes. So she turns on her cell phone and I look at it and I thought, this is not seizure. This is gastrointestinal. This is a kid who's lying on the floor, all crumped over, kind of doubled in, in pain on his stomach, uh, and clearly looked like he had gastro, some kind of gastrointestinal problems. A kid goes in the following week, an endoscopy and a colonoscopy, whatever she did. Anyway, I get an email now that I'm back on the East Coast, uh, basically says, uh, esophagitis, good call. Okay, so this is a kid that's been treated for a seizure disorder that he didn't have for a year and a half because nobody was, it, it's hard for, for the, even the neurologist or the doctor to always understand or envision what a parent is describing, or at least it is for me. So, you know, coming out of a neurology background when somebody's describing something and they say, well, I think it's seizure, your, your brain all automatically slips into what you've been trained to think about, okay? And I think the message here, I hope throughout this whole, whole presentation is that all of us have to think out of the box. We have to think beyond our own discipline. Uh, and I think that's the real advantage of working in a multidisciplinary environment. But to, to this kid had been treated for a seizure disorder he didn't have for a year and a half. <laughs> and this is why it wasn't getting any better because it was the wrong thing. And I, I frequently will say to parents that if, you know, if your child is presenting with some kind of symptoms, and I don't, you know, if it's a behavior problem or whatever it is, please take a video on your cell phone. Everybody's got a video on their cell phone. Please take a video on your cell phone and let me see what it is that you're actually talking about because I, I don't want to misinterpret what it is that you're saying. And that's just been an enormous gift, quite honestly. So I think it, it's not only that the, the child or the adolescent or the adult is having trouble communicating, it's also that those of us in healthcare are having trouble understanding what the person is trying to communicate. Uh, and it may be that they're, they're giving us symptoms that none of us would predict would be consistent with the diagnosis that they really have. So it, it's very challenging. You just said so many things that I wanna talk like so much about. <laughs> I'm going to try and I'm going to try and pick that apart a little bit. I, I think um, one of the biggest things that you mentioned that stood out to me was this relationship between, between a behavior that you see 
and the possibility of it being caused by physical discomfort or someone not feeling well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jen, I know that you, you have a lot to say about this because you and I have had this conversation a lot before um, in terms of, you know, the ethics around making sure that medical issues are ruled out and you can't just quickly be like, oh, well, that's how they've always been. Or, you know, that's, that's just how they are and dismiss something when you, without considering that layer of, 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 um, possibility that it could be physical discomfort. I don't know if Jenny, you want to say something about that. Well, the one thing that that has struck me, um, particularly listening to, um, other people, Dr. B who worked in our clinic was that what things look like aren't necessarily what they are. So that has been like the greatest lesson I feel. So this young gal who's saying, my head hurts, my head hurts, when in fact, it's not anywhere near their head. And I think it's it's a little bit twofold, right? Like something can look like one thing and it's actually like potentially GI. But the other piece is that, um, I've learned that a lot of my students who have limited verbal means are able to learn something's wrong, right? They can indicate something's wrong, but the abstract concepts of pain become so incredibly difficult. And like you said, localizing pain, like they don't know where it is. Um, Recently, I've had a couple of students who have been successful saying something's wrong, something hurts. And I feel like that's a really big step. And of course, giving them the communication to do so. Um, But then again, then we, it's left to us to, try to figure out, okay, well, what is that? And what could that be? Um, I think you raised such a good point, Jen, because we're also not inside somebody else's body. So it's very hard as the speech language pathology, you know, we talk all the time about teachable opportunities and seizing the moment. And if somebody has, you know, fallen and scratched their leg and they're crying and you can obviously see what just happened, you can certainly model the relevant vocabulary in that situation. But so many of these more complex medical issues, like what Dr. Bowman is talking about, we, we can't be inside their bodies with them. So we're not even able to help attach the language to that uh, because, you know, we don't know how it feels. We don't know where, where the feeling is and it, it is, it's really challenging. And I think, you know, the idea, I, I agree with you in terms of teaching sort of a, a broader catchphrase, like something's wrong, uh, at least as an alerting phrase. I think that's an important statement. I had a, a, one place I was giving a talk and after the, and, and raising these kinds of questions that you all have discussed and a very bright young woman looked like she was in her 20s, came up to me afterwards and said something like, you know, when I get sick, it takes me three days to figure out what's wrong with me. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, here is a very bright, articulate person who cannot figure out what's wrong with her, herself what do we expect for a nonverbal into persons? I, it really, it really brought home to me the real struggle. I think it is in terms of, yes, we can teach people to say, okay, I'm uncomfortable, but identifying where that is or what it is, that's a whole new ball game. That's really a challenge. Um, I, I think that, you know, there, it goes without saying that as SLPs, we have a really unique responsibility here to address these kinds of things. And Jen, I love the point that you made about when we go to teach communicating about pain and health and medical needs, how abstract some of that language is. Um, even my own, my own children, you know, the difference between an ache or a dull pain or a sharp pain or, a tingling sensation. I mean, there are so, you know, when you really, and I'm sure Dr. B, you have comments on this as a, as a medical professional, you rely so much on, on patient report of describing what, you know, the, what the physical manifestation is. Um, and so I think that there's a, there's such a responsibility there for us to try and, um, either not use that, you know, or not teach that kind of vague and abstract language and use more of a catch-all or really consider what might be the most effective way to communicate some of those things. The, the other piece I think about too is the behaviors that we see. A lot of times when there doesn't appear to be an antecedent, um, it's a question that I guess gets raised in, in, our, in my mind, but I'm, you know, potentially not in everyone's minds, right? That maybe there is pain that's unseen and un, unexpected. And, you know, is it happening right after a meal? Is it happening when the child's hungry? Is it happening after 
a bowel movement, you know, when are we seeing it? And, um, and even then it's really hard to determine, right, Dr. B? I mean. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I could go on about a number of scenarios, but it's all right if I keep talking about my little anecdotes, because I think that to me, at least anecdotes help. Uh, another, another anecdote is a young man who was uh, 12 years old at the time, and I, I would guess I would call him a, the gentle giant, uh, just this nice autistic young man. And on a Sunday night, of course, I get a phone call from his mother that she's locked herself in the bathroom, that he's having these horrible, aggressive behaviors towards her and, and self-injurious behaviors, and I mean, just totally out of character. And she, what should she do? Her husband, of course, is out of town, which is sort of typical. And so there she is by herself. And I said, well, you need to get to an emergency room as soon as you can. I mean, I think, you know, maybe you can call somebody from the school to help you, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so, uh, so anyway, she, long story short, she's able to get to the emergency room and they end up in the psychiatric emergency room at one of the major hospitals and typically and not to be snarky about this but most of the time psychiatrists don't do a physical examination they don't I mean they you know that's not their style so much however it happened to be that particular night that somebody did a physical examination in the psychiatric emergency room a long story short the kid turned out to have an otitis media had an ear infection and so they shot him up with penicillin. He fell asleep in the emergency room and got up the next morning and he was perfectly fine and walked out the door. So again, I mean, this is a situation where, you know, just an ordinary ear infection, this kid was just going through the roof over this pain and discomfort, aggressing towards everybody. And it turned out it was a otitis media. And, you know, just fortunately, somebody found it and treated it and got taken care of. So, you know, it, it's, as Jen said, it, the behaviors, it, you, you see these odd behaviors, you're sort of like Sherlock Holmes, you're going to have to say, okay, is it this, is it this, is it this, is it this, because lots of times they're just, there aren't a lot of localized clues, unfortunately. Uh, one other scenario, and then I'll, I'll be quiet. Uh, was another um, another child who was having sleep problems. Uh, he, you know, couldn't he get not? You know, he's snoring. He's waking up. Blah blah blah. And I said, you know, maybe he's got big tonsils and adenoids. So I said, I think you need to see your ear, nose, and throat specialist. So I'd send him to that. Uh, they come back the next time, and I said, well, did you see the ear, nose, and throat specialist? Yes, we did. I said, well, what did he say? He says he's got big tonsils and adenoids. And I said, well, is he going to take them out? And then she said, the mother says, no. And I said, well, why not? And, he, and the answer was, well, because he's autistic. I said, what? <laughs> I said, I don't care what his diagnosis is. The kid needs to have his tonsils and adenoids up so he can breathe, so he can sleep. So it goes back to this, this I think, something that, that Jen already alluded to. There's still that sense that some of these behaviors are just part of, well, you know, after all, he's autistic or she's autistic, so that's why they do what they do. No, that, I don't care what their diagnosis is. If there's an odd behavior or there's a new behavior, we, it's on us to try to figure out what's going on. And I love, I love that you state that because I think, you know, we could just repeat it over and over and over again to make sure that it hits home. Um, that, you know, with, when, when you're looking, when you are familiar with a student or client or patient, um, and, and this is something that I learned from you through our, like even more recent conversations, any new behavior is concerning and should you know, trigger your question of, is there something medical going on? Is there, um, you know, is there something happening? And I, I think that that is something that often gets, or not often, but can get lost yes. in the, you know, educational model or treatment model when you're starting, when you start talking about modifying behavior. Um, and I, I think it's critically important. And another thing that I wanted to bring up that is related to something that you said earlier was, you know, this idea of behavior as communication. And if someone doesn't have communication skills or they have emergent communication skills or they're minimally speaking, non-speaking, and they aren't able to communicate about pain, how long are they going to have to go without medical intervention? How long will something go untreated? How long will they go without effective treatment? And how, you know, 
we really need to consider that as a backdrop when we see these changes in behaviors, because they could be not just in a little bit of an earache, but they could be an excruciating pain because it's been there for however long, just thinking about your example with the ear infection there. Well, I think your, your point's well taken. And I guess one other example I would have of that is that, uh, as, as was mentioned early on, I do research and we our research relates to looking at postmortem brain. And one of the cases that we got along the way was a young man who died of a ruptured appendix. And he, I'm sure he had terrible abdominal pain. Nobody picked up that he had appendix, appendicitis and a ruptured appendix and he died. So, I mean, it's not just only, you know, let's take care of so-and-so's behaviors or whatever it is, but I mean, is this gonna be a disorder that's gonna potentially be life-threatening for a, the, the patient in question? I mean, that's overly dramatic perhaps, but it's if this, it, we can't afford to just sort of slide by some of these things. I think that we really do need to take a lot of it seriously. I think there's a huge tendency to say, okay, we'll use behavior management. And I'm a big proponent of behavior management. I think that's great. Uh, there's a tendency to say, well, we'll put him or her on XYZ medication. Uh, I'm not so enthusiastic about that, although I know it has its place. But if you're going to just cover it up with some medication, pardon me, medical band-aid, then that's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to help the child unless we figure out what the underlying problem is and can treat that problem first. Well, not only can it be, it, it can be a matter of life and death, but it's also, even if it's not a matter of life and death, it's a matter of quality of life. And I, all of our clients should be entitled to the highest possible quality of life. So, I mean, I, I think whether it's an ear infection that's going for an extended period of time without treatment that's causing somebody pain. Like that's also something that we need to be aware of and on the lookout for. Um, so all of those are important. I have a question, Dr. B. Have you ever, um, like, I don't know if there are children or families who have a little bit more difficulty accessing, you know, this type of diagnostic um, that would be required for GI, like if, or if a parent's afraid to have their child put out and they can't do an endoscopy on them or, you know, whatever it would be, like, have you ever treated GI issues prophylactically? Is that ever done? Or is that not really done in the field? I think most of the, most of the gastroenterologists that I work with, typically what they typically do is get the story and then they, they start off with some kind of medical management. So, okay, well, this sounds like it's reflux. So I'm gonna to try to, um, I'm gonna give X medication and we'll try that for a couple of weeks and then we'll have a conversation and do you think it's any better and so forth and so So I think most of the time they do try to do something without having to do a procedure. Uh, many times, however, that doesn't work or they, you know, they try a second medication and that doesn't work so that they end up having to go in and do a procedure in any case. Uh, and to try to, to confirm the diagnosis and then you know do something that's a little more specific. So yeah, I think people do do that. It's not something I would do because I'm not a gastroenterologist. Uh, so it, you know, it's, I'm not sure the first I'd be the right choice, but I think some of my colleagues certainly do that and do it well. Sure. And I wanted to go back to something that um, that one of you said earlier about just how sort of jumping off from the sensory processing difference. And how some of that, I think, regardless of diagnosis, can also just be respecting that you don't know how someone else's body is experiencing pain. So, you know, I, I think that that's part of that autonomy of I mean, respect of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Integrity, like respecting someone else's autonomy and integrity to be able to, um, you know, experience things that are that's different than the way we experience them. Um, and before we sort of jump into our third learning objective, I wanted to ask you, Dr. B, about, you know, we've talked a lot about behavioral uh, communicating pain through behavioral means, so engaging in aggressive behavior or any other, you know, any change in behavior. And I didn't know if you had any anecdotes about something that was very subtle, um, you know, any sort of, you know, instead of the gentle giant who is all of a sudden engaging in aggression, um, you know, are there any, is in your experience, any changes in routine or behavior that also have indicated pain that weren't, you know, huge changes from, from day and night? Hmm. I have to think about that. I guess, uh, you know, sometimes I guess kids who have sleep problems, uh, 
I, I've seen some changes in behavior that have come from dental. Uh, so somebody has a, a dental pain of some kind. So their their eating habits have changed somehow that they got there. They used to eat the, whatever it is they used to eat, but now they're not, or they're not chewing anymore, or uh, they they won't take what they used to, your favorite food or what have you. I've seen, seen something like that. And so one thinks about, you know, is this a, a cavity? Is this some kind of dental abscess or something of that sort? And I've seen that happen. So I'm, I'm sure that that can happen. I'd have to think a bit of, about a little bit more. The, the more, the more uh, circumstances that seem to stand out in my mind are the ones with the, with the real dramatic. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. I just, I think what I, the point I was trying to make um, was, or making that connection between, it's not always just a huge swing in, of a change. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really at, taking the time to ask the family or ask the parent, are they having any has anything else been off? Has anything else been askew? Um, and making sure that considering pain or considering medical issues is sort of a backdrop in your thought process was more my, my thinking. Well, I think that, yes, I, one of the other topics I think that you have on your list is, is the issue of mitochondrial disorders. And I think this is one of those scenarios. Uh, it's, it's kids who, kids who, well, first of all, kids who go through regression, they, had been talking, now they're not talking anymore and, and they go through this development regression. But there are a subset of kids who go through multiple episodes of regression over a period of time. So you have a seven-year-old who's, who's regressed. I mean, that's, what is that? That's not something that we're used to hearing about. And we've discovered that this is one of our clinical flags to start looking at, you know, one of the mitochondrial disorders and whether there's something we should be able to do about that. There are kids who have been okay physically, I guess, uh, maybe a little bit low tone, but then start having periods of sort of what I would call low, low endurance or uh, uh, easy fatigability. And so somebody could say, well, that's a behavioral problem. But, you know, you have to actually take that seriously. Again, is this a signal that this is some kind of a mitochondrial problem? You know, although we believe that many of the mitochondrial disorders have a genetic, some of them have a genetic basis, it's, it's not something that you necessarily see up front. You may see it years later, or you know, it can show up at some un, unpredictable time. So, I think you know, any any. I think your point is well taken. Any kind of change in behavior that's kind of odd needs needs investigation. Can you describe what it might look like for people who don't know what a mitochondrial disorder is? I mean, just like giving us a general overview of mitochondrial disorders. Oh, okay, well, you've got about three hours. In a, in a nutshell, <laughs> 10 sentences or less, go. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, there are a whole host of different mitochondrial disorders. Uh, so, and there are some of which I have to confess that I'm not uh, skilled at. But basically, mitochondria are the inner engines for every cell in your body. So it can involve multiple organ systems. Uh, it's not just brain, it's not just behavior, it could be GI, it could be some of these other things we've already talked about. But that's one of the signals is if somebody has a, a you know, multiple organ systems involved, some of the other signals are the ones that I've already talked about with the easy fatigability, poor physical endurance, uh, episodes of regression. Um, uh, I had one other and I've, I've just lost it in my brain. But uh, so th those would be the ones that we'd start thinking about. And generally speaking, we try to, to work those, those kids up. Um, mitochondria are sort of the, uh, well, I guess I said the inner engine of every cell in your body, but they're what are called organelles that, that live in, in the cells. And so they are a real entity and they do require uh, certain substances, sort of like gasoline for the engine. And so one of the things that we do is to try to identify, you know, somebody who falls on the mitochondrial spectrum, so to speak. And that we've tried to, there's really no hardcore treatment for mitochondrial disorders. However, the, the uh, Mitochondrial Society put out a consensus paper probably in 2014. Uh, and one of the recommendations they make is for what we call a mitochondrial cocktail, which is a, a, a group of vitamins that the mitochondria rely on for its gas to the engine. And we have it, those those substances compounded, which is preferable certainly for kids because otherwise they're going to be taking a handful of pills uh, twice a day, but have them compounded into something that the child will actually take and take it twice a day. I would say you know, we've got many kids who've responded very nicely to that.
I had one young man, for example, who uh, wasn't speaking. Uh, we, we put him on the cocktail. He, language began to emerge. Uh, then the insurance company refused to pay for the cocktail. So then he was off the cocktail and his re language skills regressed. So then we were finally able to do a medical necessity letter and the insurance company went back and paid for it again. And fortunately he was able to recover the language that he lost. He uses a device pretty effectively for communicating and does, does use some verbalization, but mostly it's his device. But uh, anyway, he's, he's a great guy. He's now a, a young adult. He works in a nursing home where they think he's the best thing since sliced bread and he works in the mail room and the cafeteria and the laundry and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I, th I think it, it gets back to changing somebody's quality of life too. I mean, it, it, it changes who they are. Sure. I mean, and I think we're sort of getting into this third learning objective, reviewing different medical um, issues that can sometimes overlap with people who have complex communication needs. And another one that we had sort of touched on earlier a little bit in one of your anecdotes is seizures. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I know speaking personally, I've had several of my students and clients, more than several, many of my students and clients over the years um, also have um, a seizure disorder. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of what kinds of things if, if a speech pathologist listening has a student or client or patient on their caseload and they are, they suspect a seizure disorder, what are some of the things that you would recommend that they look for? Well, first of all, I think mostly what I've gotten from the speech pathologist who I've worked with is basically somebody says, well, he, when, when I'm working with him or her, uh, they often have these staring spells where they look like they're kind of out of it and I call the name and, and they're not responding. And then, you know, a few minutes later, they come back. Uh, occasionally they'll, they'll describe some kind of twitching or unusual behaviors, uh, some little shaking things that the kids do. But most ones that I've heard from mostly, maybe just the ones I've heard, have been this business of staring spells, which are, you know, I, I, I'm not, we used to see a lot of what we call, used to call petty mouth seizures were just little staring spells. I can't remember the last time I saw a petty mouth seizure. I think most of them are now what we call complex partial seizures. Um, and so, you know, if somebody's reporting that, usually the, the, the speech pathologist or the occupational therapist, whoever, uh, reports that they're seeing some funny staring spells and they've raised the question as to whether it might be seizure. And usually they translate that to the mother, you know, transmit it to the mother who then transmits it to the doctor who then decides whether they want to work it up or not. And unfortunately, I think most people do. Uh, the, the trick is getting the EEG trying to get electrodes to go stick on somebody's head for any length of time is not easy. Um, furthermore, if you get, it's, it's, it's tricky. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you want to go through the whole scenario here, but uh, we can get it. It turns out that you can do an EEG on somebody and they can have a perfectly normal EEG and still have seizures. And the reason for that is that the EEGs are, are picking up, electrodes are picking up electrical activity on the surface of the brain. If the focus of the seizure is down deep, you're gonna miss it, okay? So it's perfectly possible to have, still have a seizure disorder and have a perfectly normal EEG. It's also perfectly possible to have a funny looking EEG and not have seizures at all. So you're still having to try to figure out how does the clinical piece fix, fit in with what, what we're gonna see on the, on the EEG. I think, um, again, it gets back to if, if somebody is reporting funny episodes that they think might be seizure, please, please, please turn on your cell phone and please give me a video of what it is that you're talking about. Because if I can see it, then I have a better idea of what you're actually talking about. Uh, and I realize that's not always easy to do. You're working with somebody and suddenly they start doing whatever it is. Do you have time to haul out your cell phone and, and grasp a little video? Uh, some people are able to do that. Some, sometimes they, they, the event doesn't last long enough. But if they, you know, honestly, a picture is worth a thousand words. Whatever behavior is being de described about, please, if it's ever possible to get a video of what these behaviors are. And I tell the parents the same thing, by the way, not, not just therapists. But if you're a, you're a parent, can you just get me a video? So, for example, the other day, some mother sent me, uh, she was saying that he, her son has now got tremors in his hands. Uh, and I said, well, you know, what does that really mean to me? I mean, how is this central tremor? What is, what's going on here? And so I said, can you get a video? And she was, she was able to send me a video. So I had a better idea 
of what, what this was about. I think it's probably secondary to a medication that we just put him on, as it turns out. But in any case, at least now I know what we're talking about here. Uh, so I think, you know, it, 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 any kind of video that anybody can get is really going to be useful no matter what. Videos could be helpful for really anything that we're seeing, right? Like if we think we're seeing something that looks seizure-ish and you might see it and say, gosh, that could be GI or, you know, so if parents are, you know, bringing students, children to medical professionals, videos of what the concerns are of the therapist, staff, people working with them, as well as what the family's seeing. That's actually a really good point, Dr. B. And I think, you know, as long as, you know, I think that's a really, really great point. And obviously there's that conversation that you have to have about like permission. And I know, you know, every workplace has their own, has their own, you know, sets of equipment and using personal cell phones to record students and patients and that kind of thing. But um, I, I love the idea of, you know, maximizing our modern technology to, to translate more and better quality information, because I think it facilitates that collaboration between medical professionals and therapeutic professionals. That's so critically important. Um, I, there are, uh, there's at least one other big disorder that I would love to talk about called pandas, um, which I know all of us have had a little bit of experience with, but before we get onto that, there was one other question I wanted to ask about seizures. And that's the fatigue. So I know from personal experience um, in the handful of um, students and patients that I've worked with who have had seizures, after a seizure episode, their level of fatigue is is so significant. Um, and I, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that a little bit and how that might obviously impact someone's learning or be a red flag for further referral, et cetera. Yeah, well, I, I think it's just a seizure. To me, it's a signal that this was really a seizure. Uh, that if, in fact, they they're that fatigued afterwards, that they fall asleep for a few hours afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of too many other things that would would do that. So, uh, yeah, I think it just helps with that. Is it is it is the fatigue going to interfere with their learning? Maybe for the immediate future, but probably not. You know, the, you know, in between seizures. I wouldn't expect them to have such a degree of fatigue that they weren't able to participate. But, you know, again, if you have frequent subtle seizures, I suppose that's possible. You know, you have people who have, you know, they can have 20 little events a day, I guess. And, you know, not that I've actually documented that, but, you know, it's, it's in the literature that you could do that. Uh, so I suppose that after that, that yes, you could have some intermittent fatigue and that could interfere. So I, I think that, you know, if they're tuning out though and, and having, so having a seat, I guess if, you, if in fact somebody's having some subtle seizures, suppose they're in class and this, this child tunes out because he or she had a seizure, but it's not possibly pretty obvious to anybody, they just blanked out, so to speak. They're, they're not getting the information that the teacher is teaching or whoever is working with them is working with them. So they can, then you have to say, well, you know, they can look like they've got an attention deficit disorder because they just tuned out, but it, it's not an attention deficit disorder. It's because they tuned out because they had a seizure and they missed whatever was being talked about. What is the neurology behind, and I don't know if this is a stupid question or not, so you can just judge me in private later on after this comes out of my mouth. But if someone, is there a relationship between seizure activity or high rates of seizure activity and loss of skill. I know in the past, you know, I've in charts, I've seen, um, you know, quote change in medical status, right? So they had a seizure or had a certain level of seizure and, and had lost some sort of skill. Is that, is that a thing? Is that a real thing? Yeah, I think it is a real thing. It's not common, but I think it is a real thing. And it's usually not permanent. It's usually that it'll come, you know, it'll come back if you work on it again. Uh, but yeah, I think it is a real thing. It certainly has been reported. So in students or children or patients who are having difficulty um, like retaining or learning new information and they have a history of a seizure disorder, would you liken multiple seizures to like, like multiple small traumatic brain injuries? Like, is that how it's impacting the brain? I'm just curious neurologically what's happening when we're seeing that sort of I know that there are multiple I've had no I don't think I see that as multiple brain injuries I think that, that the nerve cells are just overexcited and, and are not transmitting information the way they should so I don't see that as brain brain injury per se I think it's um, 
I don't know how to describe it, atypical disordered uh, neural communication, I guess, uh, hyperexcitability of nerve cells or nerve transmission uh, that's causing this, this seizure activity. Uh, but I don't see it as brain injury per se. Thank you. Because I do think that's a misunderstanding in, in some of the um, circles that I've been in. So it's helpful to have that clarification. Um, and then um, I did have a question I wanted to go back about mitochondrial. So does mitochondrial disorder occur in the general population? Where do we see that? Actually, it can occur in the general population. And again, I have a, a set of non, uh, dysotic twins, girls. The mother took her down to Atlanta, which is one of the places that we were at that time using to, for diagnosis, and she got a muscle biopsy. And this young woman was turned out to have a complex one mitochondrial disorder. I mean, she, I mean, I think her mother said that she tended to fatigue a lot, but I mean, she, other than that, I and mean, we cognitively find it turns out now she's graduate. She's got a master's degree in special education and is teaching, uh, but you know, she still has a lot of trouble with fatigue. We've got her on a mito cocktail, and she has to kind of pace herself in terms of the kind of things that she does during the day so she doesn't overextend herself and this sort of things. But she's, she's definitely got it, no question. And there's cognitively nothing, nothing wrong with this lady at all. She was just a very nice, pleasant young woman, but she's got this excessive fatigue. Yeah, you, you don't, do not have to be autistic or have a special need in order to have a mitochondrial disorder. Very interesting, thank you. Sure. So in our last 10 minutes, um, I wanted to review pandas. Um, I'm just going to ask you what it is because I, I have a, a very vague definition of what it is, but I'm, I would bet my house that uh, my definition is wrong. Probably not. What's your definition? <laughs> Don't put me on the spot like that. I'm not going to tell you I'll be wrong. You what? tell me you're the doctor. <laughs> I want to hear what your impression is. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to guess ready. I'm going to put my it's a, a vulnerable position here. My understanding is that pandas, I don't know what it stands for. I believe it's an acronym. And it is strep that has gone amok. <laughs> that's very good. Actually, that's not bad. <laughs> oh, okay, good. That's my medical degree that I got in a Cracker Jack box. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so the, it's an acronym, and I always have to have, write it down. So uh, it stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Streptococcal Infection. That's what pandas stand for. So yes, you're absolutely right. It's related to strep. And it's generally people who've had one or more strep infections. Uh, why some people get it and some other people don't get it is not clear. It's an auto, considered an autoimmune disorder. Uh, sometimes it can be fairly brief. Uh, usually it presents with uh, behaviors such as aggression, OCD behaviors, anxiety, depression, uh, again, uh, frankly, probably any change in behavior, we're back to that story again, would be something that you would probably want to have check it out about. Uh, there are ways of, of diagnosing it uh, or trying to diagnose it, some of which has to do with um, blood tests. Uh, there are also other, you know, some people will get other uh, studies to try to rule out other possibilities of why this person is kind of falling apart. But usually the blood test will be something like anti-streptolysin anti titers to show that he or she has had a recent episode of, of strep. Uh, and then they're treated with, typically the first line of defense is, is antibiotics. And uh, you know, sort of, it's not a quick 10 day antibiotic story. It's usually can be weeks worth of antibiotics. If that doesn't work, then uh, there are people who go to more extensive treatment. So one of which is what's called IVIG, so intravenous uh, hemoglobulin kind of therapies. Uh, sometimes the uh, pandas can be chronic, so it can last months. Uh, so that, and frankly, I've probably had kids that have had it as long as a year. Uh, just, and you have to keep, you know, trying to, to treat it and nail it down. So it's, it's, it's pretty variable. Uh, but it, it's, um, it's kind of a contra. In some ways, in some places, it's controversial. There's some places where they don't believe that pandas is real, uh, that they think it's you know something that you know somebody I guess had a bad dream about or something. Uh, but I think I I'm pretty convinced it's real, and I I've certainly seen kids respond uh, to the antibiotics. I've seen them treated mostly with amoxicillin, but uh, I think people are treating other ways. Um, 
I think that there was a lady by the name of Sue Sweeto who was at the NIH and who was really sort of the lead dog in, in pursuing this particular disorder for many, many years. I think she's sort of semi-retired at the moment, uh, but I think has done some very nice research which has been pretty convincing that this is a, a real disorder and it's a it's re, it's response, response to strep infection. And I think it's worth mentioning that it's relevant to the speech and language pathologist because I've seen firsthand what it does from a communication standpoint in terms of very persistent, repetitive Mm -hmm. communication in an individual who maybe didn't have that intensity of repetitive communication. And, you know, it sort of cut again, that change in behavior that, that this is a change in status. And all of a sudden, all you will talk about, all you are interested in saying is red truck, red truck, persistent, persistent. Um, and it was in my experience, it was, it was because of pandas. Um, Jen, I know that you've also had some experience. Um, and, and I don't know if you want to take a minute to describe how it can be related to communication. Um, well, you know, I've seen it in two students um, and in, I guess one of my questions related, and then I'll try to answer your question, Katie, is what if it's not caught at the time that the strep infection is active? And what if, you know, you see some of these, you know, these new OCD behaviors and they are going on for a period of time. And then let's say six months, eight months later, people start, you know, a physician or somebody decides to look into this you know, like at what point is it always treatable? And I'm just kind of curious about that piece. Well, that's a good question. And I don't know that I can answer it. Uh, uh, Oftentimes I will recommend that families seek out a specialist who uh, works with pandas because that's not, I mean, I'm aware of it. I know sort of, you know, kind of have a superficial view of it. But I think you know, you really, it's one of those deals where you really need somebody who's been around the block a few times and has seen a lot of kids with a lot of complicating factors. So, but uh, I, I think that they do get treated long-term, uh, but I'm not sure that I can, I can really answer that question. Actually, it's, it's a good question. No, thank you. Um, and then just in terms of how it impacts communication, the two students I had were both AAC users one had minimal verbal output, but he used his device to repair communication breakdowns. And what happened was the OCD was so intense about things unrelated to communication that it was difficult to get both of them, in fact, to focus on communication and they weren't able to express their basic wants and needs, um, what was going on for them. It was just because they, they kind of had these OCDs completely unrelated. and. In fact, in one case, the OCD continued to change. So like one day it would be, you know, something and then the next day it would be something, you know, a little more concerning and another day, and it had to, like, it had to get completed before, you know, then, then the OCD would change again. And um, to be honest, the OCD never came, you know, came around to being like, I really want to communicate, <laughs> you know, sadly, um, that was a big issue. What you're describing of this change of good and bad days, I guess, uh, is pretty typical. I mean, it's not like it's always the same thing. So you're absolutely right. Before we sort of um, wrap up for for the day, well, for this episode anyway, it's not the it's not the end of the day. It's the middle. It's it's the evening. Um, I wonder if we could just take a couple of minutes just to emphasize and recap um, how you know we've covered a lot of different major medical issues. You know, this is so relevant to anyone with a complex body. There are so many different um, intersections between communication disorders and, and medical issues. Um, and I think it's you know, one of the, we've, we've talked about a lot of really intense uh, medical issues, seizures, pandas, mitochondrial disorders. Um, but you've, we've mentioned it, mentioned a couple of very, you know, everyday aches and pains too, like ear infections. We mentioned, mentioned dental issues and vision. Vision is another, um, is another issue that I think is, is so important to, you know, to address. I, I totally want to echo that point, Kate. I think vision and hearing, you know, don't forget that we're looking at, that, I mean, the auditory system and the visual system are both super important, particularly when we're thinking 
about maybe somebody who might be using an aided communication system. You know, I mean, being sure that we're mindful, not only of, you know, kind of medical needs related to health issues, but just the reality that we need to make sure that everybody's getting the same access to hearing and vision screenings that are meaningful um, is really important too. I say this as a, as a full glasses wearing person, um, you know, but it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Again, back to that quality of life piece. If you have sensory system, um, sensory systems that aren't working optimally, and there's things that we could do to help make sure that you're better able to access auditory and visual information from your environment. Again, that's, that's really, really important. And I I think, you know, we are this whole episode, we're talking about people who have complex communication needs and are either, you know, minimally speaking or non-speaking. So in these instances, you're more likely more often than not probably dealing with some sort of augmentative alternative communication system. Um, And to Amy's point, you know, the hearing and vision systems are critical sensory access points for communication um, in a variety of different ways. So, um, So I I think, you know, these are just really such tremendous points before we wrap up Dr. B and Jen, is there any, do you have any parting words of wisdom for, for our audience? Well, can I, instead of a parting word of wisdom, I'd like to to follow up on, uh, shoot me down if you want. Uh, I, I, I would still think about migraines because that can cause you vision problems as well. And I can only relate that because, uh, as an eighth grader, I beget, uh, this is personal. Uh, I remember failing an algebra test because I couldn't see the board and there, there's, there's something happened to my vision and I couldn't see the board. And so I remember explaining that to somebody uh, and I got a vision test and there was nothing wrong with my vision. It wasn't until I was a medical, actually I was a resident in medical, uh, I left medical school. I was a resident in neurology at the University of Maryland and I had one of these episodes and the, the guy behind me who was one of the faculty people said, I think you have migraine, okay? All this has been going on all these years. Nobody just, you know, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, it's not just people who have disabilities who can have these problems. It can be people who, who don't have disabilities or having trouble explaining or at least having interpreting so that people understand what it is that they have. So again, I think the speech pathology component of this is really important. How do you help people to verbalize what's really going on? I could have helped some, probably a speech pathologist could have helped me at the time <laughs> to help explain what I was describing because it obviously it took probably about 10 plus years and more before I finally found out what the diagnosis really was. Well, anyway. that's a, such a good point though. And it is a little bit of like the chicken egg phenomenon, you know, is, is someone having headaches because they have vision issues? Are they having vision issues because they have headaches? Like I think a lot of it is, um, like you said, like detective work, trying to figure out what's going on for students. One yeah. one thought I have in terms of just sort of the summary piece is just how important it is for us to collaborate on all of the issues, you know, being in a school, getting input from medical professionals, being medical professional, getting input from the school. I. Um, I'm very fortunate to work in a program. Um, we have a, a large number of nurses in our program, so we seem to be very medically based. And But when we have students going for medical appointments, we do a Google Doc and we write from every discipline's perspective and share it with the physician and the family prior to a student going. Um, and that just seems to have really taken off in the last couple of years because that, and now the physicians seek out you know that information from us, those who know us. So, um, you know, just, I do think the collaboration piece is just so key for our students and patients. I totally agree. You, this was so great. I learned so much from both of you. Um, I, I feel like I can speak for Amy. She did too. <laughs> I did. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having us because this was fun. It was good to talk to all of you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And you guys, I mean, just giving us your time. This was really awesome. So thank you so much. If anybody has any questions about this episode, uh, you can reach out to us at info at slpnerdcast.com. Um, as I mentioned, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this episode. If you would like to earn ASHA CEUs, cruise on over to our website to find the episode uh, and where you can purchase access to the quiz. We love hearing from our listeners and we're so glad that you joined us today. And thank you guys for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Having thank you.